Hey everybody, it's Mark Thompson and welcome to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm here for this fourth segment on women in leadership with Dr. Benita Thompson, the foremost expert on collaborative leadership. And you know, Benita, we've had the opportunity to interview chief executives, scientists, Nobel laureates, presidents of nations. And in this four-part series, there's been an eclectic collection of people with so many different backgrounds. When you think about the type of people we're gonna hear from in this last section, what would you say brings them together in one leadership theme? Well, I think in this particular segment, we're gonna to talk to women who have not necessarily felt like they fit in. And they didn't feel like they fit in because they were visionary. And their vision was a very difficult thing to communicate. They needed to create community. They needed to create a support group in order to make that vision come true. And they talk a lot about how they went about doing that. Enjoy this fourth and final segment on Women in Leadership. Dr. Patterson's theories were so controversial that scientists planned conferences to refute her theories. Despite that, she continued undaunted for 40 years to save a species that she believes is our closest human cousin, the gorilla. As a graduate student, Dr. Francine, or Penny Patterson, was introduced to a one-year-old baby gorilla named Coco. Coco would change the path of Dr. Patterson's entire life. She would also help all of us redefine what we think of as a wild animal. Coco and Penny became a feature story in magazines across the world and a subject of television specials. You've probably seen the now famous photo of a huge gorilla holding a baby kitten on the cover of National Geographic. That gorilla is Coco, who calculates mathematical equations, creates expensive paintings, and easily converses in fluent English using a form of American Sign Language. Mark met with Dr. Patterson in her home, where she shared her lifelong dream of becoming a scientist and studying the lives of animals. My passion initially was to learn about the mind of another species. That's been my passion since I can remember. I mean, crawling in the grass, I guess, looking for the frogs in the window wells. That, that's just been something that I could just spend, I mean, hours, days, weeks, years just watching the movements of creatures. I just found this incredible fascination with watching a salamander walk. I mean, that was all it took to just completely mesmerize me. So I would be bringing in bats from the fields, <laughs> snakes, and my mother was incredibly tolerant, you know, maybe making a remark here or there about there's a potential for rabies, <laughs> but fostering that and never discouraging it. When I found that my schooling took me to a place, and my professors, Carl Prebram, took me to the zoo and introduced me to the, the gorillas, that I was actually given permission to work with an, an infant gorilla. I couldn't sleep the night before. I couldn't, I was just constant. I was totally nervous and incredibly excited about meeting what I considered the the ultimate animal, you know. So we've all become conservationists and in some sense activists um, toward changing the way the world treats these creatures before it's too late. The great apes will probably be extinct in the free-living state within a very few years. The eastern lowland gorilla in the last three years alone, the population has been decimated by 90 percent. 
So we don't have much time. It's the clock is, you know, one minute before midnight, and then we lose them. If you were to think about a time when the passion was the only thing that kept you at it, could you talk to me about a time when that was the case? Oh, boy. Lots of times where I felt challenged. It seemed that that's been the story of my life. (laughs) It's a huge commitment that I didn't see as that. I'm not sure that I would have done it. So I would say follow your passion, accept the commitment, enjoy the commitment, and it's the commitment and the passion that will, will allow you to do the big things that need to be done in your life. I mean, that's, there were a lot of hurdles that I didn't even question. There really was no other choice for me from the very beginning, although I didn't know that. I, my circumstances, my life circumstances prepared me for that because when I, was, when I had just entered college, my mother died of breast cancer, and being the oldest daughter of seven kids, I was elected. <laughs> and so I did college and I did that at the same time. So multitasking, I got a lot of experience with, and that I needed it <laughs> because working with Coco, that was a 24-hour-a-day commitment. But my life path, I considered the loss of my mother the most difficult thing, the most devastating thing that ever happened to me. It prepared me for something that I'm not sure I would have had the strength to face, the challenges of from critics and from people who were saying, this is not possible, you've got to be making it up, it's all something much simpler, these animals do not have minds. The attitude has changed now, but there were actually conferences designed to, to basically demonstrate that we were frauds. <laughs> Scientists, I guess, at that time who were threatened by this notion that there was a, a deeper intelligence involved with this species? Academicians, armchair philosophers who really had never worked with primates, but on the surface of it decided that this was an impossible proposition, so we had to be, something had to be wrong with it. The world doesn't even know what a great great ape is, doesn't know what we stand to lose. You realize that the differences between us, which seem so big, they, they look different, they move differently, they vocalize differently, that that's just surface, that there's very little difference between us, psychologically, emotionally, in all the ways that matter. And things like art, music, things you just would not think of, mathematics, The great apes have all of those abilities. A lot of people get stuck when they are finally confronted with a a real challenge. And we were talking earlier about what your reaction is, trying to look back at a time when the first conference was held to refute your position on on the intelligence of the species. What what was going through your head? I don't remember. (laughs) I I have to say that there's something about my mind that doesn't hold negative information. And that's not true of some of my colleagues who can cite chapter and verse about what happened. I think it's a a blessing that I can dismiss those things. Those things go away so that I can focus on the positive and keep going. Because there's been an awful lot of negatives pointed at this field because it is controversial. It changes the worldview in a way that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it could be a constant barrage that would actually drive you to depression. You would just give up. So I've maintained the focus on the positive. Could we go back to the day when you met Coco? 
and describe to me the experience of that first interaction. I was so excited when I met Coco. I couldn't believe my luck. Uh, it was like the ultimate creature that you know could ever drop into my lap. And Coco was one year old, almost to the day. She was 20 pounds, little white tuft on her rump, brown, deep brown eyes, tiny little black hands that were capable of leaving bruises where they held me tight, fingerprint bruises on my arms, but also incredibly inquisitive. Her face right up in my face. I was a neophyte. I was like learning sign while Coco was learning sign. I was like, we're both learning sign at the same time. So I didn't even recognize that she was using grammatical devices in sign language until I looked back at the records, read what it said, looked at the videotapes and saw she's asking a question. It came to me that I could not leave her crying at night. That I mean, those were just the increments in which it dawned on me that this creature depended on me and, and I depended on her f for an emotional exchange. Today, Coco is 30 years old. She's 300, we just weighed her, poor baby, 310 pounds, a little bit overweight. The average female gorilla is 250. Um, she still has beautiful deep brown eyes, glossy, long black hair, and her hands are but her hands are like twice the mass of mine um, and, oh, many times the strength. She has incredible strength, but it's completely contained. She has language to express her displeasure, and she does that often. <laughs> if I say something she disagrees with, she says, fake. And when, when we have, say, visiting colleagues, sometimes she will say things that I don't translate because they're very out there. It's like, this person is fat, and she will say fat. <laughs> <laughs> or stink for their breath. <laughs> but we don't always talk about those things. How do you go about getting the, the word out to the people who you think can make a difference? We have had the great fortune to have wonderful people on the committee that people do know the names of. They don't know my name, but they know Robin Williams' name, and they know Sting's name, and they know Whoopi Goldberg's name, and, and Gloria Steinem. Now you've gone almost 30 years without a lot of support. So how did you make it the last few decades until that happened? Well, the first 30 years was not easy. We struggled to get grants. Uh, we were advised by National Geographic, who was supporting us at the time. I've had to cope with not having money, not having enough, having to let people go, or not replacing people. And wondering where the next dollar is going to come from. So that's a very scary position for me. But almost up until the recent, very recent past, I felt resistance from, from trying to, to get the data published, from getting support from our donors, from having seeing red ink to just all of those things. Only recently, very recently, and I think that I saw the turning point when a group of colleagues started to get together. The colleagues in the field, there are only a few of us. We were in competition. Competition for f funds. I mean, intense competition. So it's kind of, for me, magic that we're getting together. And of course, donors would always write, why can't you groups just get together? And it would be more efficient. You'd, you know, get the job done. And it wasn't that easy because we seemed to be at odds. 
What's the lesson in this? Well, it's it's a lesson that took us all each 30 years to learn, and we hope that other people learn it much quicker, is that, that collaboration and cooperation is the key to, to succeeding in in ventures that are are challenging and, and important. It just seems everything's falling into place. It's starting to, to happen. The people we need are there when we need them. Peter Gabriel is involved in an intense way with a foundation that may become the umbrella foundation of all the great ape projects called ApeNet. I'm at a very exciting but very difficult time because I am having to go out there and ask people. I'm getting like, I get hives when I have to do these meetings. I mean, I'm just totally basket case psychologically. I have to ask very wealthy, very important people to support this cause. I have to convince them of what is at stake and go in one-on-one and, and it scares, scares me. But, uh, you know, I'm doing it. I'm doing it and I'm surviving. I just have a sense that it will be all right. And I take risks. I have taken risks. Not all my board agrees with the risks that I take, but I've, I'm taking risks to go out on a limb to use the resources we have to get the support that we need and pray that the people we have will stick with it, even though they're not being paid very much and some of them nothing. It's never been easy, but I just have always had this feeling that it will be all right, that we will survive that we will ultimately thrive. It turns out that the largest organization in the world teaching adults over 50 how to use the internet is a nonprofit that recruits senior citizens to help other seniors discover the online world. It's called SeniorNet.org, and it's led by Ann Rickson, its chairman and chief executive officer. Ann remembers one leadership lesson about the importance of knowing who the real leader in the group may be. My parents were very involved in the civil rights movements. One of the things that I thought was so interesting that happened, they had a lot of protests where, you know, the church leaders and all the civil rights leaders, you know, we do, do civil disobedience. The white power structure didn't really know who those people were. And the way that they identified them was the clipboard. They would always arrest whoever had the clipboard. So what they would do before they would go out is decide who they would pass the clipboards off to, which of course were all the junior people. They would never give the clipboard to the people who were really in charge, because then that would tell the people who really was in charge. And it, it actually worked beautifully, so actually the leadership was never arrested. They were trying to find ways to disrupt them, and they couldn't, because they kept arresting the people with the clipboard. Known as one of the pioneers in relationship-centered care and integrative medicine, Dr. Rachel Remen. She's an internationally recognized physician, scientist, author. Her book, Healer's Art, is required reading in more than half of American medical schools. Quite an inspiration because she herself suffered with a chronic illness, Crohn's disease, for over seven decades, giving her a unique perspective and humility as both a patient and a physician focusing on incurable diseases. She's led an incredible, impactful life with her work and research. And I I had a chance to sit down with her at the kitchen table with Dr. Rachel Remen to talk about how she defines leadership. Well, I think I 
would define a leader in a somewhat different way than most people might. I have been a doctor to people with cancer for 28 years now. And in that time, as a physician, I have seen people use anything to enable themselves and the people around them to live better. I have seen people use anything to enable themselves and the people around them to grow in wisdom. I've seen people reach out to others in powerful ways in times of great loss and crisis, their own loss and crisis. I've even seen people help the people around them by the way in which they die. You know, there is such a simple greatness in us all. And my experience of leaders, are leaders are people who know this. Leaders are people who do not see the world in terms of destinations or even in terms of success and failure. They have a much longer view of things than that. Every disappointment is a time of great learning which will move the process forward. They are not stopped by failure the way the rest of us do, or by disappointment. They use it all. When you think about this healing process and how you've been connected with people who are gravely ill and people that you've counseled from all walks of life who are facing that kind of challenge, what are some of the lessons that have emerged from from those kinds of challenges? Well, I think the lesson that I have seen is... um, The fact that we cannot determine always what is a setback and what is a gift or a blessing, that people are able to use some of the most difficult experiences in life in order to learn how to live better and help the people around them to live better. But I think the deepest level of stress is when we have one set of values that are important to us and we find that we are living by another set of values. I would define leadership almost in terms of people who don't compromise their values, people who live up to their own inner sense of things. And for this reason, leadership is often different than success. You know, success is culturally defined when you... Give the culture what the culture expects. The culture will reward that. But a leader is someone who gives the culture what the culture needs, not what the culture expects. And many of the world's leaders in their own time were not respected, were not seen as successful people. And in retrospect, they served us all. When you think about the training and sacrifice that goes into becoming a physician, Hmm. like in other very demanding professions. It requires a combination of the self-confidence to believe that you can acquire this knowledge and apply it, the drive, the passion. As you have a conversation with them about finding the meaning in their work, how difficult is it for them to open up and, and get to a place where they can have that conversation? If you take a group of doctors and have them speak to each other, or a group of CEOs and have them speak to each other, there's a common experience which makes it easier for them than it would be for, for example, for any of those people to talk to either either of us. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's very hard. 
compassion is the one of the characteristics to me of leadership. It's what enables people to hold to their integrity despite social pressures. It has always seemed to me that real leaders were born or had the experience of being born to do what it is that they are doing. They may not have known that when they were young, but they have been perhaps moved by some kind of an inner guidance system to a place where they are doing something that they experience fits them perfectly. You know, this particular profession is a calling. Was it that way for you? Yes, definitely. And I was the only pre-med in the kindergarten. But I think, I think that a leader feels this way also, that most of the people who I have met who have been leaders have felt that they were born to do the thing that they were meant to do. And the interesting thing is, of course, Mark, is that a young person who may ultimately turn out to be a leader, their experience is not always a comfortable one when they're young. Their experience may be that they don't belong, that somehow or other they there are, you know, a square peg in a round hole or they don't fit in. And this can be very agonizing to a young person. Uh, many of the young medical students that I have met who have felt this and who have tried to drop out of medicine, I generally say to people that, you know, they um, don't fit because they probably belong to the future and that the medicine that they will fit into hasn't even happened yet and that they will make it happen. They will find their, they're not going to find their place. They're going to build their place where they fit. When they do it, they will build it for us all, for all of us. And, you know, that has, was my experience when I was young and felt that there was more to disease than the curing of the body. This was seen as very crazy, that there might be a relationship between the mind and the body. This was seen as insane. Tell me about your early experiences when you started to share this vision with scientists and physicians. There were a couple hundred doctors in the room, and I talked about the fact that it might be possible to have a good life, even though it wasn't an easy life, and it might be possible to, through the experience of suffering and illness, to become a deeper, larger, wiser person, and that this might be part of our goals as physicians. By the time I finished talking, three-quarters of the people had left the room. How did you feel about that at the time? In a funny way, it didn't matter. What mattered is that a quarter of the people were still in the room. And, you know, leadership is never a majority vote. What moves the world forward is often something that occurs to one or two people first. You know what I've learned over time myself is that I've followed many different things in my life. At first, I followed what was most admired. I followed a a dream of success for a long time. I followed dreams of power. For a while there, I followed many different things, but I think that ultimately I've gotten this thing right because I now follow my heart, and I follow my own unique idea of what's important. And I think that that has enabled me to make a difference. I used to think of it when I was a pediatrician in the old days, when I would see a woman tending her infant moment by moment, day by day, you know, think of it now when I see someone going through a very difficult chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, moment 
by moment and day by day, or I watch someone who loves them, accompany them, step by step by step. And there's something about leadership in this. We were talking about how failure does not stop leaders. I think a leader is so, is so clear about what it is that they are serving, this purpose that is very important to them, that um, they're faithful to that purpose, whether they're successful or whether they have failed. Someone who I respect very greatly once said to me, it is far more important to fail at important things than to succeed at small things. And I think that's true. That's a statement of a leader. Candace Carpenter, co-founder of what was one of the biggest media companies to start the revolution during the 1990s, iVillage. As a leader in the dot-com industry, Candace developed a unique company culture for her organization that was key to her success in scale and growth. So you see, you can't really grow a company any faster than you can scale yourself. And by maintaining a style of rigorous mentoring for her employees, she accelerated their development at an extraordinary pace. She calls this method radical mentoring, and it allowed iVillage to keep pace with the constant reinvention that the industry demanded, and we've seen for generations since. Candace and I had an opportunity to sit down and talk about the details of her style of mentoring. Well, radical mentoring sort of grew up out of necessity in, the, in that when we were running iVillage and at a time when talent was becoming very scarce and we had a lot of young talent and a lot of very open positions in the senior ranks and we thought, you know what, we could hire people from outside and we'd have a 50-50 chance of getting it right or we could try to figure out a way to grow these people who we love and respect but who are not even close to ready right today we could see how quickly could we grow them into these positions. And then they'd be people that we already have decided on as people, in essence, and who would grow up in the culture, and therefore the cultural fit we would know was great. So we took a couple of people initially, a woman named Mac and another woman named Hillary, both happened to be women, although later we put a lot of men through this. We asked them, would you like to go on a ride? <laughs> and they both said yes. And uh, the result, I'll tell you first, Hillary went from being my assistant to being one of the women who, who founded and ran the UK operation for iVillage five years later, four years later. Mac went from being an assistant web producer on one of the channels to being offered the COO job of our company. Now, she did, declined it because she got married and was having children and actually wanted a break. But that's the kind of result we produced. So we found, to our surprise, that we could move people and they could move themselves exponentially faster than we had thought. But we found that what it takes, uh, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of courage on the part of the person to be willing to open themselves up tremendously to growth. And growth is really not, uh, we all know, growing is, is uh, <laughs> rewarding after it's done. Not so much fun while it's happening. The actual, technically what we did, since we were making this up, is we said, okay, we have this assumption that people would grow naturally if they got enough feedback. You know, if you knew to go a little bit more left or a little bit more right, you would do it. You know, usually we're walking around without enough information about how we could be more effective. And in the old companies that I grew up in, uh, I had a mentor, and I had a mentoring program where they talked to me once a year. So we thought, all right, let's change that. Let's make it every day, five times a day. And that's what we did. So we just gave them constant feedback. And the first thing that happened is that we're all a little afraid of feedback, but after about two days, they got over that totally because anything happening to you five times a day ceases to be much of an event. 
And they also realized that it didn't really hurt as much as they thought. I mean, a lot of it was positive. It was all, all very to the point, you know, and people got to the point where they, they really got that. They wanted as much feedback as we had time to give them. The second part of it was that at some point in growing, almost everybody comes up against something big in themselves, some part of their character that's not a skill issue. So in each of these cases, every single person we mentored in that way came up against something in themselves, whether it was their ego, whether it was some sense of insecurity, didn't, some fear of being left out that was brought into the workplace. And what we found is that by tackling that head-on with somebody, we were able to get them through it pretty easily. I mean, we're not licensed shrinks or anything, but we just found that by, by describing in a very simple way that we saw this as the one thing left in their path between what, where they were and what they wanted, and, and gently working with them on it, that they were able to get through it really pretty easily. And so we had just success story after success story from doing this. And, you know, we all had learned some ways of giving feedback, like the management 101, like you always say something nice, and then you nail the person, all that stuff. We sort of say, look, you know what? It's just pretend it's your kid's sister, your kid brother. It's someone you care about. You think they could benefit by knowing this. It's a matter of... Um, Getting, you have to pair yourself with someone you care about. That's essential. I mean, the mentor has to care about the person. Because I think there's just a lot of, there's a lot of evidence from the therapeutic tradition that change happens in those conditions. So that's probably the only thing that's essential. If you, if you have a young kid who you personally can't stand, you should pass. You, know, you just shouldn't try to be the person helping them. It's interesting that teacher often arrives when the student is ready. Yeah, absolutely. How did the, how did the teacher feel about this? What did the mentor learn from the Well, everybody, experience? you know, this is pretty, pretty exciting for everybody. I mean, most people, because they didn't have the experience that I got to have at our Ben and Knowles, were, were even more shocked than I was. I mean, I saw kids that were a mess come to our Ben or Knowles and leave a different person, you know, and their parents were calling me going, what did you do? I don't get it. So I had seen that, and I, but a lot of, some of my colleagues who hadn't were, were, were truly astonished. I think one of the changes in mentoring now is that my mentor at American Express, the assumption was that he was mentoring me to stay at American Express. That was the entire deal, and to follow, in essence, in his footsteps. I think when we mentor people today, we have to accept that we're mentoring them for a portion of their journey, and that it's not likely that you know, their whole journey will be with the company that I'm at, and it's not likely my whole journey will be at that company. Could you talk more about yeah. your mentors? You talked about American Express yeah. and, and also Outward Bound and that experience that you had. Yeah, I mean, I had two really important mentors. One was at Knowles, actually, at National Outdoor Leadership School, where I became an instructor against all odds. I was not the most likely mountaineering instructor. Every time I got on a rock wall, I started crying, which was not really, the, not quite the, the look they were, they were going after. But... I sailed through all the other tests, and so they gave me a shot, like the most probationary shot to be this, and um, I was in love with it, so I was determined. But I had an instructor, uh, course leader, who really changed, you know, changed me in the way mentors do, and he was a radical mentor before the term was coined. I went through a river in front of a bunch of students. I went across a, a raging river first to check it out. And I fell, there was, uh, there was a rock, and it turns out the river was a lot deeper than we thought. And I went down, and I hadn't left my, my uh, backpack unbuckled. And our backpacks, the instructors were usually carrying about 100 pounds. So, I mean, I was, I was gone. And he, fortunately, was able to get in and get me out. 
and save my life. But he didn't quite stop at that. He got everyone assembled on the shore and said, you know, Candace just did an incredibly stupid thing and went on to make a great object lesson of me. And I was very humiliated by it. But you know what? I think in the end that it was a very good thing because he, he got my full attention. It's hard to explain. I thought, okay, I'm, not, I'm with a guy who's going to expect a lot of me and going to hold me to a standard. And, and it really was very good for me. The second thing he did was I was leading a rock spur up a big mountain uh, called Gannett Peak. And it was a, I was really so scared of rock climbing. And I hesitated in front of the rock spur with all these students behind me. And from the back, he shouts, either lead, follow, or get out of the way. <laughs> I wanted to go right through the ground. But again, I mean, I thought his principle was sound. And what I did, that night he said, you don't have to be a climber. Just decide. If you're not a climber, don't lead climbs. This is his only point. About two weeks later, I bought a rope. I drove to Yosemite, and I, I ended up the summer climbing Half Dome. And I became a climber. I actually became one of the best women climbers in the country. But it's because of him clarifying for me what my choices were. So he was a great mentor. Then I had my, the, the mentor at American Express was spectacular. His name was Steve Goldstein. I went to American Express out of the mountains, effectively. I went to business school. But I would go down to the cafeteria and eat lunch, and then... I was still wiping my hands on my suit before I remembered that we were indoors now and there were napkins. So I was like a wild child imported you know, into the hallowed halls of American Express. And I had good instincts, but I needed a lot of house training. And he was very patient. He gave me um, this big project to make a strategic presentation to what turned out to be the top 20 people of American Express. And I didn't like the assignment, so I decided I wasn't going to do that well at it. But I'll tell you, the morning when all those people started filing in, I really regretted this tactic bitterly, and I did a horrible job. And he called me in and he said, well, the good news is you worked very hard on this. The bad news is it definitely did not show. <laughs> and um, what he, he said, I'm going to give you another chance, which is the last thing I wanted, by the way. He had me give the whole thing to another 20 people in American Express two weeks later, and I did an unbelievably spectacular job. And that's a great mentor to me. I mean, he just, uh, he didn't give up on me, but he didn't particularly give me a lot of slack either. He held me to the highest in myself. And I would say to this day that making strategic presentations is one of my strongest suits. So I think this is what mentors can do for us. They can take something that is a weakness in us and actually turn it around to be, you know, a lifelong strength. It's very powerful. I think that having, for kids doing physically scary things is almost essential in this century. Is, it is it's really important because so much of what they face as leaders is going to be uncertainty and if they have any sense at all, terror. And learning that, you know, to have conquered things like that, I think visceral things like that, not, not intellectual problems, but visceral fear, I think is a very important component of leadership because a lot of what is leadership is fear, you know, being afraid. If you're awake, you know, and you're not medicated, you're afraid. You know, there's a lot to be afraid of when you're leading something. And I think learning to uh, take that fear in stride and therefore be able to help other people take it in stride is, is really a very important part of leadership. There's, there was something that went on at Knowles. There was a certain climbing teacher whose students performed differently than anyone else's. And I was so fascinated by this. And I finally realized what it was, is that he was creating a kind of a safety net under them, a mental safety net. He made them feel so safe that they would try things that no one else would have gotten them to try. And I think a lot of being a leader is you create that safety net and people somehow, all the things out there that are scary, you know, uncertainty in the stock market and all the things that really can paralyze an organization, 
suddenly I think a leader can put a wrap around that and have people feel safe uh, and be able to function at a high level in the face of a lot of uncertainty. The real truth is that because I think being a lead leadership and the ability to create things is a gift and if you have it you really have to use it. I think you just lead if you must. You know, if that's your calling in essence, you lead. If you can avoid it, I would strongly recommend avoiding it. If you can in any way talk yourself out of this, talk yourself out of it. And some small number of people won't be able to talk themselves out of it. And you're the ones who should really do it. So I do feel that way about leadership. I think leadership is a very hard, selfless gig. And that, you know, if you can just go any other way, do it. There's an easier, softer way that you can come up with. You should take it. There are a lot of skills of leadership, but at the end of the day, leadership is a commitment to put yourself completely on the line on behalf of whatever it is you're leading. I mean, it's not, to me, a real ego aggrandizing concept. It's, to me, a concept in which you agree to suffer a lot of things on behalf of what it is you're leading. Take hits, take arrows, take slings sleepless nights. And, and I think when I talk to kids about it, that's the biggest thing I, I think maybe they're not getting from people. They're getting the idea that the leader, oh, the leader's on television, the leader has this great office, and the leader, and because I learned about leadership in the mountains, what I learned is, oh, great. So when everyone's sick, the leader digs a latrine, and the leader is the last one to get out of the rain, and the leader is the one who goes hungry when you run out of food. And that's really, to me, the notion of leadership that it's not like you get first dip on all the goodies. Now, you get heavily rewarded, but anyone who's ever been a leader would know why, you know, because you're giving a tremendous amount of yourself. What's the process that you live through, or what's the first thing you do when you're starting to lead a new mm -hmm. entre entrepreneurial project or right. lead an organization? What are the steps that you take? Well, for me, I can't really organize the people or even my own commitment level until I can get a picture of what it is we're doing that's extremely clear and crystalline. And there are some people who start businesses or ventures by very opportunistically, like let's see what sells or let's see what. I, I cannot do that. Because if you take the time to get this picture so fleshed out and so perfect, you'll save yourself years. You know, of you, you'll be so efficient and so clear in your operation. The idea will never get diffused by opportunity. So that's the first thing I care about. And then I think the second thing is you have to get a team together that is quite diverse from each other, which I have learned over time. You know, everybody wants a team more or less. It's just like them because it's easier to function. Every, you know, I, I remember that front page of the Wall Street Journal with Jack Welch's director reports, and they all look like twins. I thought, that doesn't look so hard. I mean, they're all the same person in a, in a way, you know. But I think, and John Doerr said this in an, in an interview I read, and I, I think he's so right, that you need such a diverse team in the beginning of something that it's almost like you wouldn't all naturally sit down and have dinner together. That's about when you have it right, because you need uh, different kinds of peripheral vision, different kinds of people need to be worrying, and their brains need to be set up to worry about different kinds of things. So you need a kind of worry wart, very anal type, like my CFO was a worry wart. You know, I never worried what a meteor hit our company, no, because he was lying awake every night worrying about it, <laughs> so I could have a good night's sleep. Um, but you need someone like that, and then you need the eternal optimist, and you need the highly intuitive person, you need the very analytical person. But that's it. I think you really need all those skills, and then, then when you have that, I think you need to wrap them in the glue of this mission that, that everybody has bought into very strongly. 
And then the last thing I think that gets something going is to have a very clear sense of milestones, which I would describe as being different than goals, and that goals to me are achievable, incremental. They look like, okay, great, we can grow 10% a year. But the milestones to me are to say, okay, if we really want to be in this game, we have to get you know five paid clients in six months. We have to raise X amount of money. We have to, it's things that really, there's no particular reason why you would get them done, but you have no choice. So I think you have to agree what are the five or six things that we have to do here to stay on the playing field and, and have a chance to go to the next level with it. And once people have identified those, I think they're very energized. Having that really makes a difference because, I mean, every research study ever done shows that people think it's great to have money, but meaning, meaning is actually, in the end, more important to them. And I see that in secretaries. I see it in junior people out of business school. I, I had a woman call me in tears who just graduated from Harvard Law School, got into the best law firm in New York, called me sobbing, like, you know, is this all there is? <laughs> Help! And quit to go take a job working for Charlie Rose at $30,000 a year. So, you know, I know that the best and the brightest want to get their arms around something important. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.